Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of January 2019 and this is episode 98. On today's programme, Richard Stobo gives a talk on the operations of the Australian Corps during the 100 days. This paper was given as part of the End of the War and the Reshaping the Century Conference held at the University of Wolverhampton in September last year. Just thinking, an Australian talking about the Australian Corps and Monash to a room full of Brits. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how we go. Is that um, is that working sufficiently well? Okay. We, Australia has a very peculiar history uh, relationship with the First World War. It looms larger than any other conflict in uh, in just about any other story in the national history, and yet we know very little about it. Uh, it's bookended by Gallipoli at one end and the figure of Monash at the end. It's not. Um, not, there's no operational sort of narrative really that ties it together. Um, so here we go. Okay, the achievements of the Australian Corps. Uh, sorry, before we get. Um, oops, let me go back one. Okay, the um, the achievements of the Australian Corps in August and uh, September of 1918 are among the most impressive in uh, the nation's military history. Five Australian divisions. Uh, fighting together as the fir- for the first time as a coherent formation, and also the British 32nd Division, who served for three weeks for the Corps, but are often forgotten, um, or overlooked, certainly in our narrative, uh, advanced from Amiens to beyond the Hindenburg Line, as we've just heard, a distance of about 35 miles in 58 days. They enclosed an area of uh, 250 square miles, and they captured in the process about uh, just over 100 villages and towns and 23,000 German prisoners. The Australian victories, as Monash coined them after the war, um, are invariably carved out of the wider experience of the BEF um, and seen as the inevitable product of a unique national formation of volunteers under the inspired leadership of their native-born commander, John Monash, who had only taken over uh, the Corps on the 31st of May 1918. It's portrayed generally as a triumphal march, leading the 4th Army, spearheading the 4th Army to victory, or, uh, and the British, of course, to victory, um, and therefore the Australians have... have this reputation of being you know, the, the force, along with the Canadians, I guess, who, um, who did so. However, it was a particularly difficult time for the Australians, this, uh, this advance, and that's often overlooked. And I just want to explore some of the difficulties that they faced, uh, then draw some comparisons with the British Third Corps, who were operating to the north, and then finish with um, just some general um, uh, thoughts about how and why the Australians had what success they had. The Australians lost 21,000 men during the two-month advance, including nearly uh, including 3,000 dead. It was about 400 casualties a day and 600 for every mile of ground gained, which sort of flies in the face of the uh, reputation Monash had for doing everything to protect every man. Um, he was actually quite uh, brutal in that sense. Uh, it was about 12% of all Australian losses in the war, and we lost um, as many men in two months uh, on the Western Front as we had in eight months at Gallipoli. These were losses at Cadilla Ford. The divisions had suffered heavily in 1917 and following two failed conscription plebiscites, there was a desperate shortage of volunteers. The Australian bases in England had been combed out, but the AIF's British commander, William Birdwood, believed that 7,000 new men were still needed each month to, um, to keep five divisions in the field. Barely half that number was signing on. However, and no ships at all bearing reinforcements sailed to England in September and October of 1917. The urgent demand for recruits saw our standards decline. 
Uh, more and more men were being taken on who were far from ideal fighting material. Uh, one convoy arrived in England at the end of 1917 with about um, 5,000 men, 300 of whom were reclassified almost straight away and sent home. They had ailments including um, hearing, vision impairments, heart problems, obesity, epilepsy. Uh, one man was enlisted who didn't have a thumb and forefinger on one hand. Um, and so it went. We had a, lot, a number of the men were over 50, some were over 60. So we were really scraping the bottom of the, bottom of the barrel in terms of manpower. Reinforcements received by the 11th Battalion in January 1918 were thought by one veteran to be, and I quote, very different in appearance from earlier drafts, who were now being replaced by all sorts and ages. Albert Cowan of the 5th Battalion, he was a little more expansive. It would be ridiculous to suppose that every man in the AIF was true to type, that the war correspondents and newspaper men have created, he wrote soon after the war. The long lean and brown colonial with the easy confidence of look and manner, wonderful daring in battle and the most astounding intelligence was not always evident on the battalion parade. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's probably, um, it is popularly believed that Australians were physically superior to the British counterparts. Bean was explicit about this. He said that Australians were, um, were shocked by the state of the European soldiers that they saw over here, uh, blamed it on industrial um, cities. Uh, yet the papers of 600 Australians killed in 1918 show that the average digger was almost certainly similar height and weight to the Tommy. And the figures I've been able to work out are about just shy of five foot seven and about 10 stone. Uh, which isn't surprising given that 20% of the Australian force in 1918 were born in Britain and most of the rest were only one or two generations removed and they identified as British. It's an important point. Um, these weren't the Antipodean cornstalks of legend and they were noticeably smaller than the first flush of volunteers um, at, who landed at Gallipoli three years earlier and who I think cast Bean saw as, the, Charles Bean, the official war historian, saw as the archetypal Australian soldiers that persisted for the rest of the war for him and beyond. Anyway, size has no bearing or bravery on skill in battle. 20 VC winners, um, of the 20 VC winners during the advance, Australian VC winners, um, about half of them were five foot seven or less. Um, I suggest that it'd be difficult for all but the most keen-eyed observer to distinguish an Australian unit from a British unit moving out of the line in 1918. However, without recourse to conscription, Australian soldiers were older on average than those in the neighbouring Third Corps, about 27 years old as opposed to about 23. They were also battle-hardened. Uh, nearly 85% of our 600 soldiers had enlisted in or before 1916 and almost all took part in the terrible fighting of 1917. While one in three Australians put into the line in 1916 was a returning convalescent, it was at least two out of every three during the advance. I should just pop the advance up. That's the entire Western Front, isn't it? That's all, all we need to see for the Western Front in 1918. <laughs> Sums it up, doesn't it? We carved the Australians out and figured out the rest, but there it is. Um, there were other uh, Brits were there as well somewhere, I think. Um, so uh, in the case of 46th Battalion, 80% of the reinforcements it received during September were old hands. Uh, British ranks, meanwhile, of course, are being increasingly replenished with young conscripts. But that didn't affect unit cohesion, as we explored yesterday. I thought that was very interesting, as Tom explored. Uh, this reliance on recycled men presented problems for the Corps. Strain is accumulative, and the hot, dry summer conditions and constantly advancing line only added to the men's plight. Uh, the effects on the men were telling. One soldier described Australians coming out of the line in August as having, and I quote, faces drawn and pallid, their eyes had a fixed stare common in men who had endured heavy bombardments, and they had the jerky mannerisms of human beings whose nervous systems had been shocked to an alarming degree. Another described troops in 5th Division as gaunt skeletons of the proud formations that had fought so blithely years ago. The strain was not confined to the ranks. In late August, Lieutenant Colonel John Peck, GSO of 5th Division, was highly regarded uh, pre-war regular and decorated soldier, 
He was evacuated to England after a nervous breakdown while reconnoitring near Perron. Uh, even Monash himself was thought by his Chief of Staff, Thomas Blamey, to be thin and worn by mid-September. And on the Hindenburg line, as Alistair was just talking about Monash, it wasn't Monash's finest hour. He himself recognised he was in a sea of troubles. Some battalions went into attacks less than 300 strong, with um, companies being rolled together. News then arrived in mid-September that 6,019 men were to be given six months furlough to Australia and should be ready to depart in just 48 hours. It was received two days before the 1st and 4th Divisions uh, were to attack the strongly defended Hindenburg outpost line. Uh, the 8th Battalion lost its quartermaster, all four company quartermasters, its RSM, its all CSM, the Lewis Gun Sergeant, the Provost Sergeant. And a lot of those men had been worked into those positions to spare them during the advance. So a lot of experience was, hurried, uh, was rushed away without a chance for them to say farewell. Long-standing veterans of 38th Battalion regarded the final two months as the most searching and strenuous period in that uh, unit's history. Following the fighting at Perron in early September, one medical officer reported that most of his men had reached the limit of their endurance. Nevertheless, the units continued to patrol aggressively and nibble away at the German outposts. The work of silent penetration makes heavy demands on the uh, endurance of all ranks, wrote Aubrey Wilshire, the CO of 22nd Battalion. And the constant advancing of the line means that the movement, uh, not only of the firing line, but also of the support and the reserves. Consequently, the men get little or no sleep and feel the strain more than if they had to carry out a straight-out attack under a barrage. Nevertheless, Monash continued to drive his men. The celebrated capture of Mont Quentin, which was just about 100 years ago, almost to the day, a few days ago, uh, was remarkable, particularly given the shortage of troops um, and the lack of heavy artillery support, um, but its strategic value was actually questionable given what was happening on either side and it almost wiped out the 2nd Division who were really um, only a shell of themselves even when they fought um, a month later. Uh, Monash told one commander, Talbot Hobbs, at the end of August that it took, and he, he said it took six days rest and a good bath to restore the el elasticity of a division, but the Corps was being stretched to its limit. 4th Army recorded 1,000 convictions during August and September 1918, more than 600 of them were Australian and four out of every five of those were for AWOL or desertion. The fighting men in those final weeks, wrote ADL, are summoned to the uh, assembly line, thousands of men sick almost unto death, physically enervated, nervously bankrupt, men were breaking under the strain, men decorated and redecorated for acts of the highest courage were now deserting. The divisions of Third Corps, meanwhile, recorded fewer than 100 um, convictions during the same period, and there were only a handful for desertion and, uh, and AWOL. For every British soldier in a military prison in 1918, there were nine Australians. We see that as a badge of honour. I'm not so sure that it's true. <laughs> in September, I tell boys in my school where I teach that, and they yeah, fantastic. Um, in September, mutinies broke out uh, in 3rd and 5th Division over the um, proposed disbandment of, a bata of battalions. These were papered over, but it was obvious there were cracks. More significant were whole unit combat refusals. The first occurred in a pioneer battalion on the 4th, 5th of September. Um, I don't think that was mentioned in the newspapers 100 years you know, as a centenary. Uh, but the most serious instance took place three weeks later. After coming out of the line on the 21st of September, 120-odd uh, men in 1st Battalion refused to go forward once again to assist, just reach bivouac, mind you, to um, assist in an improvised attack by the British 74th Division. In the event, 80 of their comrades did go forward um, and the operation did succeed. Uh, the commander said that they'd been tested, these men, but they hadn't been tested nearly as uh, hard as they had been previously and that they had convinced themselves that they, were, um, that they weren't fit to take part in the attack. Bean, Charles Bean, sanitised the events by calling them industrial disputes or likening them to that. Uh, by the 6th of October, following the 6th Brigade's final operation at Montprahame and the Beauvoir Line, just beyond the Hindenburg Line, the Corps was played out and all of the divisions were taken back to rest at uh, Abbeville. So Australians aren't there for the last month of the war, which is often, often forgotten. The Kiwis are, as we will hear. 
Australian journalists, the Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who was in Europe at the time, and the AIF's higher command all believed the Australians were not receiving significant, uh, sufficient attention in the British press. Their victories were being called uh, British victories. They didn't like that. And they, started to, um, they began a concerted campaign to highlight the Australian effort. Um, Birdwood and Monash began to appeal to the men in nationalistic terms uh, for the first time, and it was a conscious decision rather than more higher, uh, rather than higher or loftier ideals. The exceptional reputation of the Australians was being strongly and publicly reinforced at the highest level. One particular grievance was that the Australians were being asked to do uh, most of the heavy lifting in Fourth Army during the advance. However, Third Corps, operating immediately to the north, advanced just as far and at a similar tempo, often more actually with divisions spending longer in forward trenches and for the loss of um, more men, about 28,000 men during those two months. Nevertheless, the Australians pounced on any British setback, including most notably the 58th Division's uh, difficulties at Chapilly Spur on the 8th of August, which we can talk about later perhaps. Uh, and Australians had a role in that, actually, which I'll, I'm not meaning to you know, destroy the Australian reputation entirely, but I, do, I think it's important that we, we acknowledge um, problems on both sides. 12th Division's problems in Happy Valley, north of Bray, um, a couple of weeks later, one or two more. Almost no recognition is given to British operations that assisted the Australians, however, including the 18th Division's uh, capture of Albert in mid-August. What is it, Simo Zone, I think, is it, Gary? The 18th Division? And um, uh, who were a very good unit, and uh, which was highly impressive by any standard, and its subsequent advance across the old 1916 Somme battlefields. So, too, the capture of saint pierre vast wood uh, Boucheven Ridge, by the 3rd Corps Divisions in early September and the hard-won victories against um, the very strongly defended, and I apologise for the pronunciations, but Epui, Pezier, Rossois and Lampere on the Hindenburg outpost line or near to it. Each uh, demonstrated a level of operational effectiveness and, and courage, sheer bravery, often overlooked in the vast narrative of the BES war experience and the story of, uh, we talked about the other night, Brigadier General E.A. Wood, who won his fourth uh, DSO at uh, Rossois, I think, was, um, that's a story in itself. If these were Australian battles, I dare say they would be held up as evidence of exceptional performance, but of course they're lost in the vast British narrative. Um, how then should we view the achievements of the Australian Corps? Well, in general, and I can only speak in general terms, in the first place they were unquestionably impressive, I'm not denying that at all. However, the Corps under Monash was fortunate to operate during August and September at the absolute peak of the British Army's military capability on the Western Front during the war. The BEF's doctrinal, tactical, technological evolution had been thoroughly absorbed by Australian commanders and swiftly promulgated through a, um, a very well-regulated training regime that mirrored the British one uh, almost to a T. In terms of success and reputation, timing did matter. Structurally, the BEF employed three battalion brigades in 1918, but the Australians had stuck to their four battalion uh, setup, which gave them smaller formations, but it did give them greater flexibility and more time to, or more opportunity to move men out of the front line and into reserve. This was almost certainly an advantage. The Corps also had available to it an array of firepower, and, um, and almost, which was almost unimaginable even 12 months earlier. And, um, uh, and tanks played their part, but artillery was the key. With that in mind, every single heavy gun supporting the Australians during the advance was British. The Australian heavy guns were still up in the north. Um, as were some of the field artillery units, so too that every tank, armoured car, much of the aerial support, and I was struck by the clarity of the aerial photos, of course, which says something for the, um, <coughs> you saw in Alistair's talk then, which speaks to the, uh, the technological advancements of the war that the Australians profited from, as well as the balloon and anti-aircraft sections. Um, Royal Engineers and British bridging teams supported the Australians along the Somme, and British signal units were there too, of course. As for innovation, if one wants a blueprint for Army End, we'll just 
heard a little bit about it, rather than discussing Hamel, as many do, one might instead study Combray, as we just heard in 1917, or French operations in mid-18. Monash was a stickler for doctrine and for methodical planning. He was not an impulsive commander. He fell back onto training, um, the training that he had. Almost every Australian set piece is covered with the fingerprints of the BEF pamphlets, um, SS-135, SS-152, 143, numerous others. Unsurprisingly, 3rd Corps operated along very similar tactical and operational lines. Of course, the Australians also drew on the massive BEF logistics network from shipping to bases, rolling stock, vehicles. The Corps operated only at the very tip of an enormous and um, effective British system, which only began to break down during October as the units moved out into the fields beyond the Hindenburg Line. But of course, that didn't affect the Australians because we were out of the line. Finally, the Australians faced an increasingly dispirited enemy. They were not the Germans of Pozier, Bullecourt and Passchendaele. Their resolve was disintegrating as, along with their home front. Flu, uh, flu was running through their ranks. German machine gunners and field guns um, delivered uh, stiff resistance at times, and there were some determined stands, but many surrendered en masse. The capture of 8,000 men at Amiens on the 8th of August is a good example, and the 2,000 men by 1st Division at Schween a couple of weeks later. Uh, Monash measured victory by, um, or comparative victory, by the number of uh, captures that the Australians had compared to the British. The, uh, the British had about 15,000 captures, the Third Corps, through that time. The 8,000 of the Australian captures came on a single day, so it actually wasn't very many. You know, it was a few more, but not many more. The British also complained the Australians kept claiming their captures. Harold Williams of, um, summed, up the, uh, summed it up this. He was a 56th Battalion. What then was the inspiration of the Australian Imperial Force? He wrote, even the most caustic critics cannot deny the fact that the Australians were first-class fighting men. But on what foundation does, uh, was this battle spirit established? Religion can be discarded. Patriotism, wait for it, we were too British for that. Tradition, what tradition had we? Probably the very lack of tradition made the Australian soldier jealous of the honour of his particular unit. When his battalion or battery had been through the testing furnace of battle and in, uh, emerged with general honour and personal pride to the individual, the foundation of his esprit de corps was laid. And I think a lot of British units would say the same thing, although there was a regimental tradition to feed into. To conclude, the Australians arrived on the Western Front only in mid-1916 as a force from the far side of the world, which automatically gave them an exotic reputation denied to the more familiar British um, formations. They'd come to defend empire. They also represented a newly federated nation, and their achievements were readily portrayed in narrow, romantic um, and nationalistic terms. For the Australian population at home, the fighting was a distant, imagined experience. The British population, however, saw the impact of the war firsthand. There was nothing imagined or romantic about it. Monash and Bean did have every right to proclaim uh, the success of the Corps to a grieving public that was yearning to make sense of such a catastrophe, and Monash was frustrated by the lack of recognition, actually, that the Corps got, uh, particularly since he commanded it. Uh, that success did not occur in an operational vacuum, of course, and we should be careful not to carve it out or colour it too deeply with a post facto national sentiment. I suggest that these were, in fact, British victories um, in the broader sense, albeit expressed with an Australian accent. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Krish Rusman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>